Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode, I talk with David Lewis, former Executive Secretary for the Anti-Financial Crime Watchdog, the Financial Action Task Force, and current Managing Director and Head of Global AML Advisory at Kroll. David and I talk about the just-concluded FATF plenary that, among other things, gray-listed South Africa and Nigeria, faulted most countries for failing to regulate cryptocurrency, and formalized Russia's suspension from FATF. I hope you find the podcast informative and that you'll subscribe to Financial Crime Matters either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Compliance program management is in your wheelhouse, but have you ever considered how effective your program really is? Not just how many learners completed that AML course, but whether it's actually helping them do the right thing. This is where LRN comes in. LRN is the global leader in ethics and compliance solutions. In fact, compliance learning from Thomson Reuters has just joined forces with LRN. Visit lrn.com to learn more about it and be sure to get your hands on their latest program effectiveness report. It's fantastic. Well, it is a pleasure for me to have with me today David Lewis, former Executive Secretary of the Financial Action Task Force and now a Managing Director and Global Head of Anti-Money Laundering Advisory at Kroll. David, thanks for being here. Karen, hi. It's a pleasure to be here. We've talked about doing this for a while, and it happens that we've now done it, this interview, a week after the Financial Action Task Force Plenary in Paris. So right away, that gives us a few things to talk about. Tell me a little bit about this. This was the second plenary under its current president. Can you recap the proceedings? A lot happened. I don't know where you want to start. Gray list, South Africa, Nigeria. Anyway, what do you want to say about the past plenary? Gosh, well, there was an awful lot. I think this partially reflects the fact that the president now is virtually a, a full-time position. And this means that FATF has, I think, stronger leadership than perhaps it's it's had in the past. And they're churning out a, a lot of stuff. Uh, last week, for me, the most notable thing was the listing of two major economic powerhouses in Africa, uh, Nigeria and South Africa. And FATF has been accused in the past of, you know, only listing small developing countries. And so this is big. And it, it answers some of the critics that say that G20 members are kind of immune to listing. So that's a big thing. And they were both listed for issues around lack of effectiveness. Neither particularly challenging uh, or particularly surprising, I should say. South Africa has gone through years of state capture. The FATF report is very clear about the impact of that. And as a result, they're now having to work really hard to rebuild their capacity for investigating and prosecuting complex money laundering, terrorist financing, ensuring law enforcement, make better use of financial intelligence from the FIU, that they have better access to information on the beneficial owner of companies and trusts, that they are improving their international cooperation and better supervision of the non-financial sector in the case of 
South Africa, and in the case of Nigeria, better supervision of both the financial and the non-financial sector. So the statement on both countries is clearly focused on a desire to see more results rather than the age-old ticking the boxes around laws and compliance. So I think that's a good thing for FATF. It's a tough thing for both those countries. It'll take them a while to do what they need to do, but ultimately they'll both be stronger for it. What's the process now, just like in a nutshell, what should we watch for happening in those countries in terms of the follow-up from FATF and what's expected of them? So they've both signed up to action plans with FATF that will include deadlines for each of the items identified in the FATF statement for each country. Now, those deadlines haven't been published by the FATF or or those countries yet, but if they fail to meet those deadlines, then the FATF will, in its own language, consider next steps. And if they consistently fail to meet those deadlines, then they could find themselves in, in the same situation as Myanmar. And Myanmar have recently found themselves on the blacklist alongside Iran and North Korea for a persistent failure to deliver against their FATF action plan. So I'm hopeful that that won't happen to either of those countries, but they will also have to contend with a possible listing by the EU, as well as, of course, jurisdictions like the UK and the US. And and for the EU, it's very, very clear that means that firms have to do enhanced due diligence on their business relationships and transactions. And that's going to push up the cost of doing business in those countries, increase friction for clients. Hopefully, it won't lead to reduction in correspondent banking relationships because that can really be quite difficult for countries. But ultimately, as I said, it should lead to stronger measures quite quickly, and that should increase confidence for investors in the longer term in those countries. To touch on a couple of the other things, there was much about regulating crypto, and they're talking about having a roadmap for that. This has been a longstanding concern of FATF's travel rule and making sure countries enforce the travel rule. What can you say about that? Yep. So it's clear the FATF are doubling down on the travel rule. The FATF was the first standard setter in any area to introduce you know, the requirement for regulations on virtual assets, virtual asset service providers. And we've seen recently how important that is to happen in other areas. The FATF are basically continuing the strategy they've had of ensuring information on the beneficial owner, uh, the recipient and, and beneficial, or the sender and beneficial owner of crypto transactions can be identified, is known and travels with the transaction. So if there was any doubt that FATF were going to backtrack on this, that needs to be put away now. Countries and companies need to get on with implementing the FATF recommendations and their national regulations that reflect that. And they need to do that quicker than they have been because there are far too many countries that have umdenard about their appetite for attracting crypto businesses and, and therefore not got on with implementing the FATF standards and not taken a view one way or the other. So they really need to get on with it. The FATF's not turning away. It is providing more guidance and help for countries, but it's, it's clearly an area of continuing focus, not only for the FATF, but also for the G20. And they issued a report after the plenary closed on art and antiquities related to terror finance. That's been kicking around. They've been promising to address that in some way before. Any Anything there that you saw that was interesting or, or that stood out, I guess I should say? Well, I, I should say this was a good initiative of the German presidency of the FATF under Dr. Marcus Player. Great to see that report come out. It's a little bit surprising that this sector 
doesn't fall under the FATF standards. It's not one of the designated non-financial businesses and professions, despite you know a general knowledge that arts and antiquities have been abused for many years to hide the proceeds of crime. So it's helpful that reports come out. It provides guidance and red flags, things to look for. So I'm hopeful that it's the start of greater FATF scrutiny in this area. Whether it becomes part of the standard or not is another question. So changes to the 25 recommendations or 11 11 outcomes, I've got that right, I think. Anything there that stood out to you as we move on from the plenary? So the continued focus on beneficial ownership is to be really commended. The FATF had changed recommendation 24 on beneficial ownership of legal entities, you know, companies, and they've now changed recommendation 25 on on legal arrangements or, or trusts as we might know them. They've also in the last plenary issued guidance to help with the implementation of the revised recommendation 24 on, on companies. And the reason why this is so important is that well, FATF's own report on the state of technical compliance and effectiveness shows that after 20 years of these standards, only half the countries in the world have the right laws and regulations in place. And more than 90% of countries are ineffective in making beneficial ownership information available to help prevent the misuse of companies and trusts. So that's why the FATF have revised the standard last year and now issued guidance to support it. And the new standard is both stronger, but also clearer and should be easier to meet. You know, in your current incarnation at Kroll, you're often advising governments in countries that may be labeled high risk. Can you talk about the mutual evaluation process, how it's been restructured and what that means for these countries and kind of what you're seeing there? Sure. Well, the FATF has decided on some important improvements to its mutual evaluation process. However, these will not be implemented until the next round of evaluations. So in two or three years from now, And it will be 10 years from now before we really see the fruits of that. It includes a shorter time frame for conducting the evaluations, uh, which should make them more up to date and relevant. I think that's important, both for the regulated sector and for countries. And it will consider the risk of countries in terms of the results of their previous evaluation when FATF determines the timing of their next one. So in a sense, this is FATF applying the risk-based approach to itself and not only requiring countries to do that in the implementation of their own AML regimes. It also means that the evaluation of the supervision and preventative measures by regulated firms will be considered together, but it will separate the evaluation of financial and non-financial sectors. The reason why that's so important is if you look at the evaluations for the last seven or eight years, most countries get a moderate level of effectiveness when it comes to both supervision and preventive measures by the regulated sector. And what's happening there is we're seeing improvements in the financial sector being dragged down by continuing poor practice in the non-financial sector in designated non-financial professions and businesses. So this is a good thing. It will put more focus where it needs to be on the non-financial sector and I think together with a shorter time frame for conducting these evaluations means that in the future, these reports will be more relevant and have been more effective and timely. It's unlikely that the global centers of money laundering will ever be listed, but the process, the FATF process is now resulting in countries, uh, including larger economies being listed for a, a lack of effectiveness. And, and as I said, the listing of South Africa and Nigeria is a good example of that. 
Let me just uh, ask you to be explicit about that. The larger financial centers, I mean, we're talking, are, are unlikely to ever be what we call gray listed, even though there's really no such thing as gray listings. Is that what you meant? And you're referring to the UK, Canada, and the US, for instance, which are the financial centers that so much money goes through. Yeah, I mean, the big global financial centers, the US, the UK, Germany, Hong Kong, Canada, Singapore, China even, I think are unlikely ever to face the wrath of of FATF by being grey listed. And I think that's a natural consequence of the fact that A, they are doing quite a lot, doesn't mean they can't be doing more, but also if they were close to meeting the criteria for listing through their evaluations, then they would probably call in a few favors from some powerful uh, friends in FATF to get them over their line to avoid being listed. And that's not something that all countries can benefit from. Well, it's interesting. I wanted to just dwell on this for a minute. I think uh, moneyloney.com, we did a story. There was talk about having a little bit of a higher bar, some way to call out the advanced economies, the financial centers, and FATF seemed to move away from that and not adopt that. It wasn't the same as gray listing, but there was talk about a different treatment and holding them to some account. Can you say a little bit about that? What happened to that? Is that in fact the case? Did they look at that? So I can't talk about you know the nature of the discussions that, that went on between countries through that process, but I can say that the FATF looked at many options and ultimately members had to strike a balance. You know, raising the bar too high would have captured too many countries, and that would have been practically difficult for the FATF to resource in terms of enhanced scrutiny of so many. But more importantly, it would have reduced the effectiveness of that process that can lead to listing. It's the strongest tool the FATF has, but if everyone is subject to it, this reduces peer pressure and, and the incentive for improvement. So the result of all of that is that the bar has been raised, but not as high as some might like, and perhaps at the expense of a greater focus on important areas, such as the transparency of beneficial ownership. So one of the other things that happened at the FATF plenary last week was that Russia was formally suspended. Can you talk a little bit about um, what that means, the sanctions regime against Russia, what that's meant to transparency and anti-money laundering compliance? So the suspension of Russia was notable in that I think it's the first time any country has ever been suspended. One other, I think I remember, came close, but it's never happened before. It's not the same, though, as putting a country on a gray list or blacklist. The impact of it in terms of Russia's access to the financial system will probably be quite limited, if if any. But at least FATF has now decided on what its response is, and it's taken a while to get there. I think more generally what I would say about the situation with Russia and the kind of toughened AML efforts that that's led to is that the response has really revealed some of the challenges facing the rule of law as it relates to asset confiscation and recovery. Uh, So sanctions can be implemented and assets frozen without any criminal or even civil burden that they might be the proceeds of crime, short of the crime itself being sanctions evasion, which is a, a bit like closing the stable door after the horse has bolted and then punishing the horse for frolicking in the fields. Uh, so sanctions are, are a political tool. And the risk is that they're being used in the place of you know, robust criminal justice measures. 
in the current circumstances, this has been deemed accessible or acceptable rather. But there is a real danger here that those countries that hold the rule of law so highly may be undermining it in the longer term. And so far, action on Russia has not been as sold action on dirty money, but instead on individuals and companies that are thought by some governments to be helping keep Putin in power or undermining the sovereignty of Ukraine. So it's not the same thing. So I want to take a minute to talk about, you know, given your background uh, in the UK with the precursor of the NCA and with Her Majesty's Treasury to ask you a little bit about the kind of progress that you're seeing or not seeing, depending on how you want to grade it uh, in the UK uh, with the Economic Crime Act, the Companies Registry, the Land Registry. Are these making a difference? So firstly, I'd say that All of those things are long overdue. It's sad that it's taken a war to make them happen. And in fact, many of these things were tabled longer ago and there was a clear case for doing them long ago. However, all that said, they're really welcome efforts and they should make a positive difference. I'm not sure they have done yet. It's too soon to say. A lot will depend on how effectively they're implemented. And that comes down to investment in resources for those agencies like Companies House so that they can do a proper job of verifying the information that's given to them when companies are registered. So it's not just about passing laws and regulations, hoping the problem goes away. I, I was going to get to that too. That this is, and I don't know if there's anything you maybe have said at all right there, but this continues to be an ongoing thing. The inability to execute unexplained wealth orders because of the expensive court battle that can ensue from trying to execute those orders. And despite the fact that so many things are in place, I guess the big issue now for the UK is um, funding. Yeah, and the underfunding of the agencies responsible has been a long-term issue. And it's difficult, you know, if you're the head of an agency who has to weigh up drug trafficking, people trafficking and fraud, you understand the part that dirty money or proceeds of crime plays and all of that. But deciding to take money away from a drugs job and putting it into a pure financial investigation is sometimes difficult. The UK has managed to achieve a level of effectiveness without the FRU, however, being at the centre of its AML-CFT regime. But the FACF methodology for assessing countries doesn't give full credit to that model. But a, a lack of resources, you know, like every era of government, has, has plagued the agencies and forces responsible. And we've yet to see that turn around. Recent efforts to limit their exposure to legal costs may help. But it's not a substitute for properly resourcing, you know, financial investigation and asset recovery, for example. And there's also scope for greater public-private partnership by accrediting or, or engaging financial investigators that may have left government but can still support or conduct investigations in the public interest. Well, we're running out of time. And so I want to wrap up with how I often wrap these things up, which is to ask you to look out on the uh, AML horizon, the counter-terror finance horizon, and tell me a little bit about what you see that represents progress and what you see that gives you concern as we go forward. So we're certainly seeing progress. It's slow and not as quick as we'd all like. I continue to be concerned by political support being sporadic and generated only by events, you know, wars, investigative journalism, FATF evaluations and listings. 
a greater effort needs to be made to educate the public about the wider benefits to society and for the economy of tackling dirty money, such that it becomes something that politicians can't afford to lose focus on. What makes me optimistic, though, is the army of well-informed people in both the public and private sector, NGOs, academics, journalists, those brought together by ACAMS uh, that are shining a light on the problem and working together in very practical ways that we've not seen before. And the potential for improvement, including smart use of technology, is greater than it's ever been before. Well, that makes me uh, ask a kind of a follow-up to your concluding remarks. So does that mean, given the EU uh, high court's stay on full public access to the registries, uh, you just said all these good things about journalists and NGOs. Is it your hope that they will, in whatever gets worked out in the European Union, have access to the EU registry? I hope they will, actually. You know, I've had some discussions with the Commission and with others the European Court of Justice ruling was surprising, considered by many as not helpful for efforts to tackle crime, corruption and sanctions evasion. However, ultimately, it may contribute to a more robust implementation of the global standard uh, you know, through full consideration of what constitutes legitimate access to that information outside of competent authorities. And that should include a way in which journalists and others can be considered to have legitimate access. So I'm hopeful that it doesn't close the door to access beyond competent authorities and we'll end up with a stronger regime as a result. Well, David, thank you for talking with me today. This has been great. Thanks. It's an absolute pleasure. Great to talk to you again, Kieran. Thanks for listening to my conversation with David Lewis, former executive secretary at the Financial Action Task Force and current head of Global AML Advisory at Kroll. I hope you found the podcast compelling and you will subscribe to Financial Crime Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.